How do companies create a culture and core values that employees actually live out? The team at The Receptionist, a Denver-based software company, sets out to answer that very question. Welcome to The Fabric. Here's your host, Michael Ashford. Back in May's episode of The Fabric, we welcomed Andrew Bartlow onto the show. Andrew and I didn't really agree on everything that we discussed as it relates to leadership decisions, especially as market shifts occur to protect employees and continue to see them thrive and grow. We invited Andrew back to the show to chat with our president and CEO, Andy Alsop, just to dig in a little bit further on a very important topic. Here's the conversation with Andy and Andrew. Thank you so much for being on The Fabric with me today. Uh, as as we all know, you did a, uh, an interview with Michael Ashford, our director of marketing. And I think it really opened up what we can talk about today, which is maybe different varying perspectives on things. And I think it's a lot about, for, for, for me, because I'm always espousing employee supremacy, we're talking about employees. But before we jump into that, why don't you give me, you know, your quick overview of, of who you are and hey, name the book too. Don't leave that out because we want to get, get that out there too. Great. Great. Well, hey, uh, th- thanks again for having me and just really appreciate um, the, the return appearance on, on your show. And thanks to Michael and to, and to James Jordan on your team. Um, yeah, I'm a lifelong or at least career long HR guy. I've been a human resources pro right out of undergrad and grad school and worked at Pepsi and GE and a couple of startups and a bunch of other companies that you would have heard of and a bunch of other companies that you would not have uh, over a 25-ish year period. Um, Yeah, and that was capped maybe about five years ago. I left uh, what is now Invitation Homes, a member of the S&P 500 as their head of HR. Um, I pulled my silver parachute and wrote a book, um, Scaling for Success. Uh, Columbia University was kind enough to publish that uh, for myself and my co-author a couple of years ago. Um, And that's about people management practices at high growth companies. And that's what I do independently today. I uh, consult and advise venture-backed and private equity-backed companies, their leaders, and most commonly their HR leaders um, how to help their organizations be more successful. It's a lot, it's really a lot of fun. Oh, and, and I, uh, coming out of the book, I started a professional development program for HR leaders and that's called people leader accelerator. Cool. Um, yeah. What a, what yeah. a background. So, um, tell me, cause it's something that I was thinking about as you were going through that, that you have now kind of been on both sides of the fence. You have been in the trenches, in operations, and then you've moved over to consulting and bringing your ideas and stuff to the table. What's that been like, that transition? I think transition is a good word for it. It's taking, it's taken some getting used to, and it's still taking some getting used to, to um, you know, learn some new skills or some different ways of doing things. As an internal operator for 25 years, I was used to making stuff happen. Um, figuring out what my internal customers need, you know, figure out what, uh, what needed to be done. And then myself and my team, we make it happen now as a outsider, as an interested outsider, 
I get to share ideas and advice and experience, but I don't actually get to make it happen. Um, and, and and sadly, I might think I have a really good idea or could solve your problem with my magic wand, but it's up to the folks that are in-house to to do it. And so that that's hard sometimes when you share some what you think is really good advice and it doesn't actually get, get followed through on. Uh, but boy, I, I have to tell you, I really love the work that I do it, and, and I get to pick the work that I do and who I do it with. And that matters a lot. Is there a little bit of frustration sometimes when you're looking at it saying, man, if you had just done that. I selectively use the, I told you so <laughs> in a, in a gentle way. Good. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, and just for my background, um, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been working, I've been starting businesses and, and uh, doing the entrepreneurial route for about 27 years, pretty much right out of college. I've started companies, I've shut down companies, I have uh, have a lot of experience in, in running companies, but they've always been really small. I haven't been running Fortune 100s and Fortune 500 companies and stuff. So I think, you know, that gives us a different perspective because you've been there at scale, which I think is really impressive and, and what I want to bring into this as well. Um, and the other part of it is that uh, I have two brothers. I have one who's a venture capitalist, uh, Stuart Alsop, well-known venture capitalist in uh, San Francisco. And then also I have my uh, brother, Joe, who started Progress Software uh, in in Massachusetts and has retired since from that company. But um, my brother, Joe, started a company where he was in an office with four people and then grew it to, you know, 2,500 employees and, you know, a half billion uh, in revenue. I guess it was about 600, 600 million when he left the, the company. So I have these two brothers that have these very interesting perspectives, because if you're a VC, you're coming much from the kind of shareholder side of things. And then in your operator, you're really looking like you've had to at all the different varying stakeholders who are involved and in making sure you're representing all of them. As we know, I'm, I talk about employee supremacy all the time. And, and I've had the great fortune of spending time with my brother, Joe. And, and there's even some videos online where he and I are very much in line where we are. He, he has said, you know, back in the, I think it was in 92, he had to determine who was the most important in the stack of all your st stakeholders. And he said, we chose employees. And I only saw that recently, which I think is funny because we both come to it from different sides. Um, so we're a little bit more maybe on the same page on that. And, and then my brother, Stuart, is representing the shareholders, which I completely understand as well. So that's a little bit of my background and what kind of um, influences me. Um, what I wanted to ask you about was something that has impacted me a lot and my thinking. You know, we all read books. We all have people we listen to and stuff. And one of the people that I, I listen to pretty closely is Simon Sinek and the whole infinite game. And I know that, that you have um, heard some of Simon Sinek's stuff. Tell me a little bit, what, do you, what are your thoughts about kind of his philosophies and things like that? Well, uh, first with Simon Sinek, you know, well-known, well charismatic public speaker on topics of uh, management. Um, tends to be light on the research grounding for his work, uh, but compelling ideas articulated in a really, you know, easy to absorb way. I, I value that. Patrick Lencioni, much the same with uh, five dysfunctions of a team. Um, off the top, 
the idea of a enduring enterprise, a sustaining business makes a ton of sense. Um, I, I think that is an admirable and appropriate pursuit with some caveats, maybe, maybe with some nuance to it. And, and I suggest that depending on your stage of organization, you have different stakeholders with different interests and some milestones that are important to them that may occur at different points in time. So it's not just a straight line infinite. Um, if you're a bootstrapped company like, uh, uh, like I understand the receptionist is, you probably have a different time horizon and different interests, like maybe someday you'd like to retire. So you have a, a date or pass the business on to your children. That might be a different time horizon than a venture capital investor that's looking at a 10 to 15 year payback on their investment. Um, and those VC investors also tend to be minority investors rather than control investors. So they have a different power dynamic uh, in the organization. If you're a private equity investor, your time horizon might be five to 10 years where you're looking for an exit or a transaction and you still want and hope and, and do your best to set that organization up for success after you uh, have a transaction, ex after you exit your investment. But that's an important milestone where once you exit, you no longer have that economic interest. And then you know maybe the next stage of company is a public enterprise where quarterly earnings matter and retail investors are buying and selling on a regular basis. And, and you can get some, you know, some mass market and some, even some herd mentality. Your stock moves on the news rather than uh, necessarily your long-term projections and, and your health. So I, I think the nuance there that maybe I'm going too deep into is that depending on your stage and your maturity and the stakeholders involved, there are some important milestones along that infinite path of the infinite game. Got you. Got you. Okay. Well, you mentioned something in there and that's growth, right? And I think that in, a, there is no way you're, you can't run an organization unless you've got like a family plumbing company or something that, you know, you just want it to be just the way it is all the time. And it provides you with something, but you know, we're in software, we're in tech uh, companies need to grow. We want to grow. Um, and the question is, how do you grow? And is there a way to grow where you are maybe putting the employees in front and recognizing that, you know, as myself as a manager, if I get the company too far out in front of it, uh, over the front of its skis, then I might not be able to continue to make payroll. I might actually put the, the business in jeopardy. But a lot of times what happens is, at least in my experience and my, my view of it, is that uh, layoffs are sort of a, a lever that you pull. Let's just run this thing. Let's run this thing at, at you know, red line. And then, well, if we need to save some money, we'll go ahead and, you know, lay off. And I think I, I, that's where I guess I have maybe a little bit more of a philosophical problem that that's in the control of the people that run the company. What, what would you say in terms of what would be your kind of retort or your response to that? Well, I, you know, first I'd, I'd agree and I'd empathize that if you are in a management role, ownership role, executive at, you know, really at any level or even just with your peers, if you're not experiencing some human empathy with a negative outcome that could happen for people that depend on you, 
that you know that you care about, then then you're you're lacking some humanity if you don't have a, um, if you don't have trouble sleeping when something bad happens to them. And losing your job is certainly something bad, something really disruptive for them. Um, I think I'd also agree that there are some organizations and there are some leaders out there. Fortunately, I don't think it's the majority who are somewhat cavalier um, and mechanistic about those tough decisions. Sometimes those tough decisions to lay people off to cut costs are not as tough for some people. Uh, but for the majority of us that have been in leadership positions, it, it's a tough call for sure. I'd suggest that um, as an organization grows and matures and has events happen in its life cycle, whether it's a you know, broad economic climate or COVID happens or a customer drops or something, uh, that if you're looking out for the best of the organization and the best of the people that work there, you will consider every tactic at your disposal, uh, which might include cutting office space, might include no more free lunches, might include no bonuses, no pay raises, might include layoffs. And that just being responsible, you should be looking at all of your options. Got you. Yeah, yeah. And I totally agree. I mean, one of the worst is COVID. You know, I, it, 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 that, that was heartbreaking for so many people. But you had to save the organization for the rest of the, the people. And I, I totally get that. There's sometimes where it feels like it's more of a lever. And the one that I, I actually was just thinking about as you were going through it was uh, the Salesforce um, downsizing. I think they, they let go. I think it was, was it 15,000 or something like that? I might be wrong about that. But when I read, I have an article that I read and it, it talked about the fact that it was actually an investor group, you know, a large block of investors that basically said, you know, you need to cut, you know, Salesforce Academy or whatever it was and cut all these superfluous programs. And they still had three or four billion dollars in the bank, I think, if I've got that all right. Now I'm quoting stuff. It's been a while since I, I read that. But it's that kind of stuff that sometimes I look at and say, hmm, the entire reason that that is being done is to raise the share, the, the value of the shares. And it's using the chips, which are the lives of employees, to do that. And I see that sometimes and I just say, is that really necessary? You know, could maybe Benioff not hired so many people or was he getting more pressure from the board, hire more people and we'll just get rid of them when things aren't looking quite as good? You know, I don't, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts around that and when you see that happen? Yeah, I, I have seen a broad-based inflation in employment, particularly in big tech. Over the past couple of years, this is not as well-sourced, but you know, wouldn't, wouldn't be hard to look up. And for the, the guys on uh, the All In podcast, talk about it every, every week, how big tech just inflated over the past two years their headcount. 50% uh, plus growth at Google and Facebook Meta. Um, without a corresponding revenue or profit increase. And so just uh, there is a tendency for there to be headcount creep, headcount growth. Look at the federal government as well. It's not getting any smaller, uh, regardless of politics, not getting any smaller. And I think that there are situations where it is 
healthy and potentially necessary for some top-down decisions uh, for the health of an organization to reduce your size, reduce your cost base. Um, I have seen through working at many different places at many different sizes and stages that sometimes some groups might not be where you need to put the resources um, for the future. You might want to move from, I don't know, your crypto bets to real estate bets, or you might need fewer people in engineering, but more people in product or sales, uh, inside sales is massive, but you haven't actually built the thing. So you need uh, to potentially reduce sales and add more to engineering as an example. Um, so I, I think as you operate an organization really of any size, you should be looking about how you're allocating resources. Um, the example of Salesforce has been a fantastic growth story, has, has been growing like crazy uh, over the past decade plus. Um, however, they're no longer a growth company if you look at their um, EBITDA or NOBIT. Um, even their, their top line is no longer growing by 10% plus every year. So why is their cost growing by 10% plus every year? And so what some of the investors, as you like peel back the onion on Salesforce and Google and Meta and others have started advocating for is if you're no longer a growth stock, you should be focused more on profitability. And so let's, let's start to look at the bottom line and where your, where your dollars are being spent. And in many technology companies, uh, labor cost, which is people and humans with houses and families, are 70 to 80% of your total cost base. Wow. Yeah. So that actually, I think that's really, really helpful. So then you'd almost kind of turn that around and say, well, look, somebody who took their eye off the ball said, we're not growing, but we're growing yeah. headcount. What the hell is going on here? And like, let's catch this before we have to change the lives of thousands of people. Would that be kind of what your perspective might be on that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say one is, um, you know, the, the I was not on the road. Um, two, the macro environment changed. So, you know, Fed interest rate environment went from near zero to, you know, 4%, 5%. Um, and, and the cost of capital really matters. When capital investments are cheap or free, you're more able to make investments uh, than when it's expensive. Yep. You know, that, that's why so many startups are laying off right now because raising around is really hard right now. Like where are you going to raise money when you're essentially your zero risk investment in U.S. bonds will get you four or five percent and the historical return on venture capital tech companies might be eight or nine is is that worth is that worth the marginal risk you know a lot, a lot of places are saying no we're gonna keep our powder dry gotcha yeah that, that makes a lot of sense okay um in what so we share information uh both of kind of like what what our sources of information were and you you shared something from david ulrich um in one of the articles you shared it says uh the h hr need not be your friend to be effective 
Um, and it yeah. describes the challenges of what I call the, the tightrope walk that HR has to balance between serving the company and serving the employees. And we almost just talked about it. You know, if you think about all the HR people at Salesforce, they're saying to ourselves, well, you guys made the decision to go and blow this place up. And then I'm the one who has to go and make the decision and get who, who we're going to get rid of and, and give them the message and stuff. What, what's it like working in that environment? Speaking from the perspective of a human resources professional, I, I'd suggest that rather than the CEO or founders who, who get the attention and, and get the empathy sometimes as the loneliest job um, on earth, it might be the HR leader that works for that CEO. Um, you know, at least the CEO founder gets to call some shots, gets to make some decisions. The HR leader is usually making suggestions and carrying out the decisions of the senior leader. But you end up often being the emotional sponge of that organization, of the, the, the challenges and hopes and fears of the team and the expectations and needs of the executives. And you are caught in the middle. It is, it's, it's a tough tightrope to walk and from my experience, I've seen, especially over the last dozen years or so in this war for talent um, with a heavy focus on attraction and retention, most HR people have, have had both feet on one side of the line, both feet in the employee advocacy arena. Um, and, and I'd suggest that there's probably some value in having more people more actively straddle the line. Um, between employee advocacy and business uh, emphasis, um, you know, fully serving their range of stakeholders. Um, but boy, it's a it is a, a sharp edge to walk. And it, even as a small entrepreneur, knowing that I had, I had learned that uh, my job as the CEO was to raise shareholder value at all cost, and in many times that meant I was up in opposition to my employees. It put me in a situation where I felt I actually would get depressed at times. Um, not only I didn't, it wasn't like I had an HR person who I could say, hey, go and do the dirty work for me or something. And that, I don't know, that may be a very too brazen of a, a way to put it, but because we're all caring individuals and we hope the best for people. But that is something that actually led me to employee supremacy. And we haven't had to do layoffs yet. Um, luckily, even through the pandemic, uh, each one of our rivals, as I like to call them, um, had really brought in a lot of venture capital and put a lot of headcount and then had to get rid of them uh, during the pandemic. And then I saw that actually uh, 18, 24 months go by, they raised another round of capital and they add a whole bunch of, of headcount back again. And to me, that's the kind of thing that's gotten me that I can't sleep at night when I do that kind of thing because it's sort of using headcount and employees as pawns in the game of growing the company, which I, I, I can't do that. I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts about that in terms of kind of that, that strategy? Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of different thoughts and reactions there. You know, one, I think for the past decade plus, it, it's, it's been a heady, frothy time for tech startups. There's been a lot of investment, a lot of growth. Um, and, and being in a startup hasn't felt as risky as historically it has been and as it's being experienced now. 
and for the foreseeable future. Like not, not every startup will be a unicorn. Not every person will get a promotion every 18 months because their company is doubling in size. Um, and venture capital money tends to be very lumpy. You receive an investment and the investors ask you, what are you going to spend it on? Okay, how quickly can you go do that? How quickly can you hit your next milestone and then you'll get another tranche of investment? And then what will you spend that on? Okay, you know, normally it's building your product and then hiring your sales team and you know, on from there. And so there, there are some stage elements to this. There are some you know, startup dynamics. There is you know, the, the capital lumpiness and uh, the you know, competition plays in as well. So how, how quickly can you get to this milestone before your competitors get there, especially in a winner-take-all uh, type of um, industry or, or area? Um, but Andy, I, I think I would also strongly agree with you that um, empathy is needed. And there, there are a few leaders out there, and they've been well-publicized with awkward Zoom layoffs and things like that, where the leader may not have the the empathy or the or the skills to make the right choices, or at least communicate it in a humane way. Um, you know, tough decisions that need to be made. But I would suggest that that um, you know, workforce reductions, that layoffs, are an important option for an organization to consider. Uh, you certainly want to avoid it whenever you can, but if you look at the range of options that you might have from you know, cutting office space or reducing perks and programs to broad-based pay reductions, bonus elimination, including role eliminations, you know, if you lose a major customer, if your revenue dips dramatically, and a lot of tech companies are experiencing that. Uh, so first there was a pullback to reduce burn rate, and by pullback, I mean uh, reducing headcount and layoffs. So you're burning less cash so that your cash in the bank lasts longer. Now I'm seeing tech companies um, see their revenue line dip because their subscription businesses, their current customers might be consolidating vendors. They might be cutting subscriptions entirely or they may just have fewer seats, fewer people paying on a per employee per month basis. Um, and so the revenue line is dipping. Um, and, and so that leads to, you know, it's, it, it's this snowball effect. Um, and sadly, yes, I think that layoffs do need to be a option for a responsible business leader to consider depending what's going on. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Because I think what, if I understood correctly, there are circumstances beyond which you can't predict, you know, economic environment, a big customer leaves you, you've done everything you can. A pandemic. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there might've been a pandemic recently too. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So there are things that definitely happen. And then what you have to do is look out for, you know, look out for the, the whole, cause it's not going to benefit everybody. If the whole company goes down, you need to make those changes. Right. But I guess sometimes there's the, fact that there's two ways that layoffs can be used and 
you know, one is I'm going to go out over in the front of my skis to grow this thing as I po- fast as I possibly can. And whoops, now I'm going to have to make layoffs. And then the other is unfortunate circumstances that happen and you have to react to those as business leaders. So I totally, totally understand that. I, I've seen something, and this is one of those, um, one of those observations that doesn't come with a lot of research. <laughs> so, but I want to ask you about it because you're an expert in this field. There's something that I've noticed with the most recent round of layoffs, and that is that what's happening is it's the employees who have been there. And I only see this because I see the people on LinkedIn saying, oh, I'm so glad that this company gave me you know, a great 12 years, but now I'm leaving. It seems like uh, employers or the larger companies are saying, hey, we hired somebody right out of college or whatever. They stayed with us for 12 years. They now have two children. They can't work as hard as they were. They're more of a burden on our health plan. They're more of a burden in other areas. They need more vacation. So we'll let, lay off them. And then we're going to go and wait six, 12 months and then go and hire younger people who aren't going to have the same burden. They can work harder and things like that. It's observational only, but does that happen? A very qualified yes. And it's not a conspiracy to go cut you know, mid- midlife, mid-career professionals. The, the issue that I'd suggest is that there becomes a, um, a bloat of middle management. Uh, and how many organizations have you seen one person managing one person who manages one person? Right. Um, that is just generally not efficient or effective for anybody. Um, you hire somebody and then they want to build a team because that's part of their career growth opportunity. And these orgs that have been growing quickly have been able to allow that. And they've done that in the interest of talent retention and talent attraction. Hey, you were a senior manager somewhere come to us, be a director. You had three people working for you, your team can be six. And and so I I don't think the organizations are specifically targeting and analyzing, and I know this firsthand, this is not happening to the best of my knowledge, looking at what they're paying for the health plan or how much vacation they get. Um, Rather, it's what are we paying for our product engineering and design organization and how far along are we getting on our product roadmap with that expense? Could we do that? At, could we make more progress at a lower cost? And middle management often ends up being that target where there are lots of meetings, there are lots of administrative processes, there's lots of um, administrative bloat as organizations get larger and more complex. So it's not like Mr. Evil's back there saying, oh, let's, let's get rid of it. Maybe, maybe somewhere. Maybe Catbert, the evil HR director, you know, is, is pulling the strings somewhere. But I, I think this is more of a, um, a desire to decomplicate organizations. Got you. Got you. That have created layers of sort of management that probably needs to be uh, more fi- – make the organization more efficient. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That sounds good. Um, interesting. Okay. So I've already talked about my brother, Joe, ran Progress Software. Um, of course, we all know who Sir Richard Branson is. Um, I don't know if you uh, know Danny Meyer from Shake Shack. Um, 
And then at some cases, John Mackey from from Whole Foods or who sold that. And of course, we've heard of like, uh, you know, Simon Sinek. But each one of those examples have taken the stakeholders and roughly put them in this order. Employees, guests and customers slash uh, community, suppliers and then investors last. And they've been able to do so and, and create really good enterprise organizations that are delivering returns. Do you think it's possible that or our companies could actually operate with that mindset where they put employees first in the stack and still grow and be successful? Short answer, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's possible. Um, I, I, though, add more nuance to it. Um, and, and actually, let's uh, you know share some context. My first job out of grad school was at Pepsi, giant enterprise organization. We've all heard of that. Um, while I was there, they introduced the customer centricity model. Instead of a typical pyramid-looking org chart, they flipped it on its head, broad base on top, narrow at the bottom. The broad base on the top were customers. Customers come first. Then our employees, then our other stakeholders, you know, up, up to senior management with kind of a service, servant-based leadership model. Um, and boy, that's worked out nicely for them over the years. And, and the, the concept of being customer-centric, I think, is one that's borne by many organizations. Um, what I'd suggest, regardless of how you prioritize your stack, is number one, be aware of your entire stack. Attend to that entire stack. If you overemphasize one over another, it's a big optimization exercise. If you you pay your employees triple the going rate, you'll be able to get less done at your organization um, because you have fewer employees in theory, I, I assume. Um, so what's, what are the boundary conditions? What are the limitations? There's this, uh, there's an optimization exercise that needs to take place around like, who are you treating in what way, how are you balancing all of these stakeholders to get the best possible outcome for the, for the collection, um, that represents the organization. Right. Okay. And I think, um, you know, there's something else that I'll add. So I'm very proud of the fact that, I'm, and and as you know, we're, we're only a 25 person company. So we're, we're a tiny company. Uh, and I started this company in 2015. So we've been at this for about eight years. We have almost no capital. So we've been doing it on a bootstrap basis. I know, I know, uh, capital can change things and, and we're, we're preparing ourselves to, to get some capital as well. But we have had only one person uh, and actually, unfortunately, two who have left this company voluntarily. We've had to let people go because that, you know, whether it's layoffs or whatever else, if you have somebody who's not a fit for the organization, they need to yeah. to uh, to go. But only two people have have left us, and they're actually in the engineering department. And what that means is the organization has institutional knowledge. You know, we have people that have been here eight years, and so when a new employee comes in and says, "Why do we do it that way?" Other employees know exactly why we did it that way because they've been here so long, as opposed to a kind of a high turnover company where everybody's looking around kind of trying to figure it out half the time. I find that there's a lot of value to that. 
It actually allows us to be more efficient. It allows us to serve our customers better. It creates a cohesive environment. And so um, that's where I put like the employees at the top of that pyramid, uh, because then if the employees are doing well, then they're serving the customers. They're creating a better customer product. Uh, they are doing a better job with, um, you know, servicing their needs, that kind of thing, marketing to them and stuff like that. That's the way, and, and, and maybe I'm a little bit idealistic, but that's really how I want to be able to run my company because it goes back to that other thing of how I can sleep at night because I know that we're all in alignment. When I walk into the office and I see my employees, I look at them with, honestly, love. I'm like, I, you know, I love my employees. I think that they're working hard for us. Whereas before, when I was in a, an environment of, okay, I have to raise shareholder value at all costs, which means I might have to get rid of people and all that stuff, I kind of had to look at them a little bit, uh, you know, I kind of like you or I really like you, but I don't know if I'm doing what's in your best interest. I don't know. What, what's your reaction to, to that? And, you know, predict my future in terms of trying to, trying to grow this thing. Yeah, well, hey, first I'd I'd commend you on on that approach and the connection that you have with your team and the success that you've had so far. Um, I, I would though peer around the corner and and I have done research on this and my my co-author of Scaling for Success, uh, Brad Harris, is a very accomplished academic and has helped feed into the research. Um, and, and actually, I'll I'll pull on the uh, the. Well, I'll I'll reference it in the in the show notes, or we'll follow up afterward with with exactly the the study. Um, as an organization grows and gets more complicated, you know, think layers. At 25 people, you're right on the fringe of your first crisis. Of your first crisis of the organization is getting too big for the CEO founder to know what everybody's working on all the time. Middle management needs to start taking greater accountability. As you depend on others to work with the front line, by necessity, certain processes and structures need to be set up to ensure clarity and alignment. Like that's one of the things that you said was most important. We totally agree. As you continue to grow from, you know, 25 to 50 or whatever it is. And this is where capital complicates things, right? You get capital, you add headcount so that you can go deliver more faster in theory. And so as you move closer to 50, you'll start to see some strain on your existing processes. Lots of organizations have a very tight, whether they're in the same office or not, very relationship-based environment. Um, and as things change, some people that might have been perfect for the early days are dissatisfied or less effective in the new way of doing things. And you'll hear people say, we're getting big company. Things are getting too bureaucratic. Why can't I just go talk to Andy about this? I've got a manager in between me or a manager and a manager's manager in between me and Andy. Um, or if they do go direct to you, then it leads to all sorts of awkwardness and in terms of who knows what and how things get done. So size leads to complexity. Rapid growth in size, exponential complexity. And certain people, their skills and their preferences will be a better fit at different sizes and stages of organizations. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. 
Um, well, we probably should wrap it up. I don't want to keep you here all afternoon and such. So one thing I'm, I haven't asked you is what questions do you have a, to, for me about this employee supremacy model? Andy, I, more than anything, I just appreciate that you as a business leader are leading with a focus on employees. Much of my work is encouraging HR professionals who tend to have the focus on employees to get a bit more of a balance on the business. And so I see this almost as bridge building with HR and business leaders both reaching out from their, from their natural uh, uh, primary focus to ultimately support a healthier organization. Um, I, I'd love to hear from you some of the successes other than retention uh, that you've had at the receptionist with the employee supremacy model. Well, I think it's also been, um, it's funny because you said, okay, we're going to get to that, that, you know, inflection point. We're right at 25 and we're, I think that we are so on the same page that I don't feel like I have to manage. It is getting to the point, I'll be honest with you, where, you know, I can't remember, I can remember at 25 people, I can remember everybody's name, you know, but I know that's going to quickly happen where we're going to be at 50 and 100 and I may not be able to remember everybody's name right away. But what I see is a cohesiveness that's occurred between all of the team members because they feel as though the company has their back, that because I espouse employee supremacy and I put them in the forefront, um, it, there is almost a, and I think this can't be measured, to be honest with you. I think it just happens. There's a loyalty that comes with that that is almost palpable that I feel like the employees are, are saying, you know, I know that I'm not just a number or someone who is here to help, you know, you become richer or whatever, that we have a mission in front of us. And that is to show that other companies can run under employee supremacy the way I've outlined it. And, and I want to write a book about it and do all those things as well. And I'm talking to people like you and everybody else so that actually this could become an operational model. I believe in my heart that it can become an operational model. And where is the, where, how do you measure that success? And I think that one of them is going to be revenue per employee. I think if you don't have all of the problems in an organization where, you know, employees are lying, hiding, faking, and, oh, I better not say that I made that mistake because I might have, you know, my manager might come down on me, where you have kind of an authentic environment, you're actually producing more. You're uh, producing more for your customers. You're giving them an authentic experience. Um, so I think that's how I measure it and whether we'll actually be successful with this model. I mean, it's, it's not that much different. There's been companies that have been run under employee first. The only problem I've seen with employee first companies is they're employee first until something happens. Like Mark Benioff gets told by his, you know, investors <laughs> that we're going to oh, go and Ohana gets put under pressure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I, that's why I've gone to a word that's very bold. Um, you know, I, I have some people coming to me like, why is it supremacy? Well, their shareholder supremacy. I'm just saying this is the contrast to uh, shareholder supremacy. It's, it's employee supremacy. It's like, who, is, who are the people who are doing the work every day? It's the employees. I'm not doing it. So that's why I always say that, you know, this is a model I want to get out there. I, 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 I breathe, sleep, and uh, dream about, you know, making employee supremacy into a model. And, and maybe we can 
move away from the Milton Friedmans who, you know, you must do everything within your power to grow shareholder value. And you hear, you know, Simon Sinek talk about that. So anyhow, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the idea of sharing these concepts and helping other business leaders to attend to the needs of their employees um, in, in the goal of building an enduring enterprise. Exactly. A sustaining organization. That, that's, that's the risk at all stages of an organization is that you get caught up in what's right in front of you and whatever that next milestone is. Maybe it's your quarterly earnings. If you're a public enterprise, maybe it's how quickly you can deploy capital at an early stage venture-backed company. But the, the key question, I think, is are you doing what's in the best long-term interests of your organization? Yep. Yep. That's a, a great way to put it. And I'll show you that I think that I'm doing the best in my organization by focusing on the employees. <laughs> That's me. Well, thank you so much. This has been an awesome conversation. I can't wait till we publish this one. I'm going to definitely get it out to my network and everything. And uh, as I said earlier, I owe you a dinner when I come to San Francisco. <laughs> you're, you're on. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Thanks, Andrew. I appreciate it. The Fabric is hosted by me, Michael Ashford, Director of Marketing here at The Receptionist. And it's produced by our creative manager, James Jordan. If you'd like to give The Receptionist for iPad Visitor Management System a try in your office, jump over to thereceptionist.com slash free trial and give us a test drive for 14 days with no credit card required. See what you think. And until next time, take care.